1: ...while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. T-Rat indicates a criminal shift to a longer game... Chinese industrial espionage copies Russian services tricks. Dharma ransomware evolves. Bitcoin's price may be tanking, but Bitcoin-based advanced fee scams are still all over Twitter with bogus big brands blue checks all over them. Nigeria plans to go after cyber gangs. Fancy Bear says it can't be sued even if it did anything. And why a password manager is better than an infernal machine. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, November 15th, 2018. Researchers at the security firm Proofpoint have described a new modular remote access trojan, T-Rat. This rat arrives with social engineering, phishing emails with malicious Microsoft Word documents attached. T-Rat is distributed by the criminal group familiar from its involvement with the notorious Drydex campaigns in 2014 the Lockheed Crime Spree in 2016 and 17, and many other attacks as well. That group Proofpoint tracks as TA-505. It's criminal, of course, and its motive is financial. No reasons of state here. Proofpoint describes the group's activities as structured in an informative way, one that can help defenders recognize similar campaigns. First is the actor itself, most interesting because recognizing the human motivations of the attacker can inform defense. Then there's the vector, the delivery mechanism. In the case of TA-505, that mechanism has been a spam-serving botnet, sometimes owned by TA-505 and sometimes leased. The third element is the hoster, usually a macro-enabled document that pulls its malicious payload from a host server. The payload itself is the fourth element. It's the malware that enables the attackers to work their will on the victim machines. And finally, there's command and control, the link between the malware and the attackers. TA-505 and other capable actors use a range of command and control servers, which renders them resilient in the face of sinkholing, takedowns, and other enforcement actions. TA-505 has tended to be a ransomware specialist but its turn toward remote-access Trojans suggests that it's now playing a longer game. As Proofpoint puts it, this represents, quote, a broader shift towards loaders, stealers, and other malware designed to reside on devices and provide long-term returns on investment to threat actors, quote. There's another new ransomware threat out there, a refreshed and evolved version of the Dharma strain. Researchers at Heimdall Security have been tracking new strains of the familiar ransomware, the latest version successfully evades detection by most antivirus software. Nation-state threat actors are also currently active. A cyber espionage campaign against engineering and maritime targets in the UK has been traced by cybersecurity company Recorded Future to a Chinese threat actor known variously as Temp.Periscope and Leviathan. We'll say Leviathan for now, and note that it seems to be engaged in the now very familiar Chinese practice of industrial espionage. Leviathan's case is interesting because of the way it points out the extent to which different nation-states' intelligence services sometimes share and more often simply copy the methods of their competitors in espionage. Leviathan makes interesting use of techniques apparently repurposed from the Russian threat actors Dragonfly and APT-28, that is, Fancy Bear, the GRU with its restored R. If you relied solely on style, you might conclude this activity originated in Moscow as opposed to Shanghai. The threat of nation-state attacks on private companies leads to a certain amount of understandable anxiety among security professionals. We checked in with Observit CEO Mike McKee for his take on how serious a threat nation state actors really are and how much of an uptick they're really seeing.
0: I think the short answer is increasingly often. Fortunately, it's nowhere near the majority. More and more, uh, there's risk there in terms of competitive trade secrets and intellectual property uh, leaving, and this is more larger companies. It's something we're hearing more and more of as being on the radar of security folks at large companies.
1: So how do you dial in what would be a reasonable, practical, proportional response?
0: Yeah, it's, it's almost a little bit by vertical. You know, manufacturing and pharmaceuticals, yeah, I would say a third of the time we're hearing that as a threat. That's probably up from ten. You know, around 10% of the time before hmm. as something that's on their radar that they're looking out for.
1: I guess what I'm getting at is I hear a lot of people say, um, that attribution isn't necessarily so important. Um, does, it, does it matter if the attacks coming in are from a nation state or from uh, just uh, your, your run-of-the-mill criminals who are trying to, uh, to get something to either steal or sell?
0: Well, I would say yes, because I think more often when it's at the nation state level, it's a direct competitor. I headed down to D.C. tomorrow to see a bunch of folks that we work with uh, that you know, get a lot of this information firsthand, but the particular individual we partnered with was at one of the larger pharmaceutical companies. You know, they would regularly see employees planted in the organization whose job it was, was to get intellectual property back to China. I do think that the difference between just selling it on the web uh, and the different you know, areas of the dark web and to actual countries or nation states is it gets into the hands of better, well-funded competitors faster.
1: And are there any specific indicators that point to a nation-state actor specifically?
0: We literally, so we work with this partner down in D.C., and most of the folks there came out of the CIA. I mean, they have literal websites that people go back to. They have organization names who they'll communicate back to. They know from their investigative work what sites are set up and what information repositories are set up, where they're trying to get it to. They have the addresses uh, and the URLs, and that's what they look for. And that's what we look for with them as we build that information into the alerting capability of our product.
1: Do you suppose that uh, this notion of being attacked by nation states has, has in some way, become kind of a, a get-out-of-jail-free card for for people who've been breached? I mean, it's it's one thing to say that uh, some crooks got in, but it's another thing to say, well, a nation state got us, and what what could we have done with with, with an attack that uh, that sophisticated?
0: I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> uh meaning people are always trying to know the why or where it came from. Mm-hmm. And you know, that whole mean time to detect, mean time to remediate is always on people's mind. It's no better if it's a data breach from some kid in the basement in the US than it is a nation state. Uh, if customer information's gotten out or Intellectual property has gotten out, whether, like I said, it's to an individual trying to sell on the dark web or a competitor across the street or a competitor in China. I don't think there's any less concern uh, on that. I don't think people are like, oh, well, you know, you can get the guy next door, you get the guy in the basement, but I understand you can't get China or Russia Mm -hmm. because their job is to make sure that, you know, as little information goes out as possible. You know, one one of our new board members, Dave DeWalt, I was actually just looking at the quote. But he was saying that 29 countries have declared cyber commands, including, you know, basically said they're going to use offensive cybersecurity methods to get information. These are more uh, nation states as opposed to companies in those countries, but often there's a pretty blurry line between those two things. Right. So 29 have actually declared they're doing it, 60 other countries say they've got the ability to do it. And that's just a, at a completely different level than it was five years ago. So it's almost, I mean, exaggerating a little bit, but Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, uh, as we know, sort of Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, cybersecurity. And it's an arm that nation states have to get information, which is becoming increasingly accepted.
1: That's Mike McKee from Observe It. The implausible but depressingly effective Bitcoin-based advanced fee scam – as in, send us Bitcoin and we'll send you 10 more Bitcoin in return, has assumed new forms, with major brands' Twitter accounts being hijacked or spoofed to convince the unwary. Target and Google are among those major brands whose blue-checked names are being fraudulently used to bubble people out of their cash, and a lot of observers are impatiently grumbling that it seems Twitter ought to do something. Bitcoin itself, we note, has seen its price crash below $6,000 on trading markets this week, as speculators apparently fear a coming fork in the blockchain. Nigeria's new Cyber Command, staffed by technically proficient military officers, is expected to help with counterterrorism. The government also hopes the young organization will take a toll on the country's organized cybercriminals. That will be a challenge... The gangs are a deeply rooted subculture. It's no accident that the classic advanced fee scam is the email from the widow of a fictional Nigerian prince. That scam is so iconic it's even known as a 419 scam, after Section 419 of the Nigerian Criminal Code that makes such stuff illegal. Good luck to the young Cyber Command. Fancy Bear says the DNC can't sue them, according to ABC News and other outlets. Fancy Bear and Cozy Bear got their pals over in the Ministry of Justice to say that. Even if they did hack the Democratic National Committee, the DNC can't sue them. And they're not saying they did, it's more that they're speaking hypothetically on behalf of a friend. That's the claim the Russian Ministry of Justice made in a 10-page statement of immunity it delivered to the U.S. State Department. If such alleged hacking happened at all, which, understand, they're not saying it did, but if it did... They say that such alleged hypothetical hacking would have been a military action, and as such shielded by the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act of 1976, a U.S. law that affords foreign governments a degree of immunity for some actions they take inside the U.S., if, that is, they took any such alleged action at all. Finally, in a story that's far less funny than bald retelling suggests, a Swedish man has received six and a half years in prison for mailing a letter bomb to what he thought was the address of a Bitcoin exchange that wouldn't change his password. Jermu Michael Salonen of Golspung, Sweden, was a customer of London based CryptoPay, a site that enables altcoin enthusiasts to indulge their passion for trading this now rapidly depreciating currency. Mr. Salonen sent the device, which was real and potentially lethal, to what he thought was CryptoPay's address but that in fact was the address of an accounting firm CryptoPay had once used. The London Mets bomb squad rendered the device safe, but it could have been lethal, and it sat in the mailroom unopened for five months. There are a few lessons to be drawn from this incident. First, don't gamble with more than you can afford to lose. Second, don't expect your accountants to open mail you send them promptly. And third, for heaven's sake, Mr. Salonin, invest in a password manager. Heck, even writing your password on a sticky note tacked to the underside of your keyboard would be suboptimal, but better than sending someone a letter bomb. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. And joining me once again is Jonathan Katz. He's a professor of computer science at the University of Maryland. He's also director of the Maryland Cybersecurity Center. Jonathan, it's great to have you back. Um, we had a story come by from Science Daily, and this was about some researchers at uh, Georgia Tech who had discovered some ch- side channel vulnerabilities with some uh, encryption in
2: smartphones. Fill us in.
1: What what do we what's going on
2: here? This was an attack that the researchers found on uh, a version of OpenSSL that was being used on these smartphones. And like you said, uh, it was a side-channel attack, which means that they were kind of using information that was being leaked from the uh, device itself, physical information that was being leaked, in order to figure something out about the encryption key being used on the device. Hmm. So is this uh, like RF energy leaking from the device? Right, that would be an example. And what's interesting uh, about these side-channel attacks in general is that typically when we think about security of an encryption scheme and when we analyze security of an encryption scheme, uh, we think only in terms of the plain text messages going in and the encrypted messages going out, and then we argue that the uh, attacker won't be able to figure out anything about the message from the encryption that it sees. But we typically don't think about all this other information that might be coming out of the device, uh, like you just mentioned. Uh, But it turns out that those can be a pretty powerful attack vector that can allow an attacker to figure out uh, more about the encryption than they should be able to
1: so so help me understand is this the the information within the device itself uh, is traveling around in, in an unencrypted state and they were able to uh, sort of suss out what what the uh, what, what the keys would be
2: in this case is that what was going on that's the basic idea it's a little more complicated than that but basically by looking at emanations from the device they were able to figure out, uh, in particular, when some operation was being done and when it wasn't being done, yeah. and that information could then be correlated with the bits of the key, and gradually, you know, by repeating this enough times, they were able to uh, figure out the entire key from the device. I see.
1: So I suppose part of this is they had to be in fairly close proximity to the device in this case.
2: They did in their experiments. They actually had a measuring device that was uh, not touching the phone, but it was right up uh, next to it. Hmm. Uh, but they claimed that in principle, an attacker might be able to do it from further away, uh, or might be able to have a recording device nearby the phone with the uh, owner of the phone not suspecting anything.
1: And what's your take on ways to prevent this sort of thing?
2: Well, researchers have been looking actually for a while at uh, at these attacks and then also how to prevent them. Uh, what's you know maybe especially interesting here is that the open SSL libraries were designed in part to prevent these kind of attacks. But nevertheless, the researchers were able to uh, carry out the attack anyway. So uh, I guess it just shows we'll have to go back to the drawing board uh, and figure out how to make the either the physical device uh, not leak this information anymore or to make sure that the algorithm that they're using for the uh, encryption is kind of leaking things that are independent of the key. Hmm. But it's definitely something uh, that's quite difficult to do. Yeah.
1: All right, Jonathan Katz, thanks for joining us. Thank you. experience your world secured visit zscaler.com zero trust ai